Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our public conversations and how we can better engage with people who are different from ourselves or who we disagree with. Every episode I speak to someone involved in public debates, from comics to journalists, politicians to novelists, actors to archbishops, and ask them what they hold sacred and what they've learned about dealing with difference. In this episode you'll hear a conversation that I had with Sarah Stein-Lubrano. Sarah is a DPhil researcher in the Department of Politics at Oxford and head of content at the School of Life. The School of Life, founded by philosopher Alain de Botton, describes itself as a global organisation helping people lead more fulfilled lives. Sarah helped build their 4.5 million subscriber YouTube channel and designs and delivers a range of courses on emotional intelligence-related subjects. We spoke about atheism and Judaism, how cognitive dissonance drives division in our public debates, and why it's hard for both of us to talk about our unconventional sexual choices. I hope you enjoy listening. Sarah, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Um, I'm going to kick off with uh, the question about sacred values, which I know uh, you will have you will be able to look at through loads of different lenses and loads of different disciplines. So let's just keep it simple and say, what are the kind of deepest principles that you live by that you would like to define your life? And you've had a bit of time to think about it. So what kind of bubbled up in you as you were pondering this? I think that the one that came up most strongly, and in a minute, maybe I'll get to talk about this through a religious lens, but this is the secular version, has to do with learning. Um, I think that Really, learning is the only way society progresses individually, collectively, and it's a very sacred process. So I'm really interested in this idea of how we um, can prioritize learning and developing as people throughout the course of our lives. Um, And I also think that I'm very interested in it as not an intellectual process alone, although it is an intellectual thing sometimes, but actually a lot of the research that's done in psychology (laughs) these days shows that learning is an emotional process first. Um, that we don't really remember facts so much as we remember feelings. And in particular, in order to learn or change our behavior, we need someone else effectively to love us in some way. So we need another person to look at us and be interested in us and think that we're valuable and care about us and want us to learn. And I would like to spend much of my life devoted to thinking about how we can make our society have more of that, because I think that we're all going to need to develop a lot in order for our society to work in a new, better, slightly more functional way. And for that, we're going to need the type of learning that comes as a process of love. That's beautiful. Um, <laughs> I'd love to wind back to okay. try and get a sense of maybe where that's come from. Yeah. Um, tell me about your childhood and just paint me a picture. But if in particular there's any uh, ideas that were really prominent, whether political or religious or any other. Um, I'd love to hear about those too. Okay. Um, so I grew up with a Jewish mother and um, an ex-Catholic, I guess, father. Um, my mother's family were all either children of Holocaust survivors or Holocaust survivors themselves. And mainly I was raised Jewish. So um, I mean, my parents are atheists and I guess in the very strict sense, so am I. But we actually, starting around the age of five or so, I was raised right next to two other Jewish families. So we actually lived our house, the next house, the next house, Um, three Jewish families in a row. And they collectively had six children and and to some degree collectively raised all the children in the sense that, um, you know, it was a little random, especially on a school night when everyone was busy, whose house I was eating dinner at and who picked me up from school. And um, so I, even though my parents weren't religious and we didn't go to synagogue with them, we went to synagogue quite a lot 
at some points with other people in that community. And also we celebrated many of the holidays, pretty much all of them with our neighbors. And so I really got to be in that community anyway. Um, and that was a big deal. And then in any case, there were some values, which I think are, are, are sort of secularized versions of Judaism that were really present in my own home. Um, in particular, our house is so full of books. <laughs> it's hard to explain how many books are in our house. Um, and there were no screens allowed except for the Olympics. That was like the policy. So I didn't watch television growing up. There are still moments where people will tell me like, oh, you know, like this television show. And I have no idea what they're talking about um, because it just wasn't allowed. And so as a result, I read, I was bored. I was lonely. I was not especially like a uh, socially adept child. And so I just read everything. I just read every possible book I could get my hands on. I remember at 11, I found my mother's collection of books and I read through some books that in retrospect were really inappropriate for an 11 year old. I think I read memoirs of a geisha and um, Angela's ashes. And then she discovered this and was like, Oh, these are really depressing and sexual. And I don't Anyway. So um, but, but overall it was really, really encouraged to read and also it was really encouraged to discuss. And so every, every dinner we had with my parents, it wasn't like they fed the kids and went off and just, they sat at the table with us and they would ask us questions and they would try to get us to discuss and give reasons. Um, and that, that's the really short version of my childhood. Yeah. Tell me, uh, where was this? This was in Bethesda, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. And is there a kind of biggish Jewish community there? How much? Yeah, I would say about 40% of my high school was either Jewish or, I mean, half Jewish. You know, like one parent was Jewish. Yeah. Um, so it was a big it was a big thing. And I remember only much later looking up the percentage of, you know, America that's Jewish and realizing it's like 2%. Yeah. Um, that was a mystery to me. It wasn't. I thought, oh, well, lots of people are Jewish, but they're actually not in that way. <laughs> and it's a very... I don't think it's just specific to Judaism. And I realize now as I kind of get to know in depth more world religions, but com coming from a very kind of Protestantized culture in the UK, a particular set of lenses, a particular way of looking at religion and categorizing it, mm. which is very driven by belief because that's what Protestantism um, mm. has kind of the legacy that it's left on the world in terms of how we think about religion. Uh, it's, I often have friends ask me who don't know many Jewish people why you would retain Jewish practice and Jewish identity as an atheist. And I do think yeah. that kind of atheist Jews or secular Jews have the most kind of developed culture around that and the most established populations of people who would call themselves that. Speak to me a bit, a bit about that and where do you think it comes from? Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a good question. I would say, first of all, um, I quite like thinking about Judaism as not just a religion, but kind of uh, some terms that the people really close to me that I love use are things like it's almost like a civilization or even a conversation. Um, and I think there's something quite meaningful about that. And, and, and in particular, if one thinks about it as a group of people who went into exile 2000 years ago, um, at which point uh, many of the main religious practices that they held had to change necessarily. The temple was destroyed. Um, you know, uh, you were necessarily going to live your life on other people's terms who were in power, then the shift from thinking we have to believe exactly this to thinking we have to preserve our community in some way um, becomes a little bit more intuitive, I think. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of history around this, which I'm not an expert on, but I think there's a, there's a sort of a shift that occurs to some degree where especially the rabbis say, you know, Right. Instead of our job being to interpret texts and do some very abstract rituals that we only let some members of the community in on anyway in a temple that happens to be in Jerusalem, 
our job is to um, develop the spiritual life of this community wherever we are and keep it together. Um, I think that sort of sets the, the ground, the foundation for thinking, maybe we don't have to believe this or that specific thing if we're invested in a set of communal values. And then also, of course, many Jews, including the ones that I'm descended from, kind of just gave up the type of belief in God that we consider a belief in God after the Holocaust, because it's very difficult to believe that any great power that's fully cognizant and completely in control of the universe will allow that to happen, right? So I would say um, the type of atheism that I have is, is, is a very like reverent type of atheism in a way, but it's the sort of relationship to Judaism that like Spinoza has. Spinoza um, really thinks about the universe itself as sort of divine, but it's not mystical. It doesn't, it doesn't think it's that the whole being as such is divine. And, um, and that kind of allows one to have a different relationship to some of the really horrible things that happen in the world, because you don't have to believe that someone thinking ahead was like, ah, yes, let's have some really great genocides. Uh, (laughs) Um, so I, I think there's both of those things happening in the Jewish community. And I also think to be honest, that you retain your culture when you know that you're not going to be allowed outside of it anyway. And I I think it's most Jewish people that I talk to feel like we can sort of integrate, especially because most of us are, are white, sort of, but we're never really going to be allowed to integrate, especially if you visit your family history. Like three or four generations ago, my family converted to, to Christianity and they were still horribly discriminated against and they converted back. And this is true for most Ashkenazi Jews. Somewhere, somewhere in the family tree, you converted in the hopes of assimilating and you weren't allowed to really. And so um, I think many people began to feel after a few generations of that, like, well, we have to have our own thing because we're not going to be allowed in. Yeah. Was the God question ever a live one for you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think everyone has to address it for themselves. And I, um, I spent a lot of time in university, especially sort of, I, sp- I spent a year researching Mormons and Mormons have this like relationship with God where you just speak to him and he's there <laughs> or she. Um, some Mormons are really interested in heavenly mother. Um, and I obviously, uh, it's a bit like having the best, best friend on earth in a way, right? If you can talk directly to God. So I, I definitely had a moment of kind of thoughtful envy about that. Um, but I have come to feel that, you know, that isn't, that isn't there for me, but at the same time, there's something really nice about the tradition that I grew up in where maybe God doesn't speak directly to you, but the other people who are invested in the same community with the same values do talk to you. And it's through that process of communal discussion that you receive some kind of answers or at least direction and encouragement. And have you always felt pretty, I mean, growing up as you did, have you always felt pretty comfortable with your Jewish identity? Has it felt more or less central in different seasons of your life? Yeah, you know, actually, I didn't think I was going to feel that Jewish until I left Harvard. (laughs) So I I went there for undergraduate and there were lots of Jews there as well. It's very common in higher education Um, and and in in America and specifically on various East Coast universities and so on. So even there, I mean, so many people were Jewish. and, And at that point, I didn't feel that connected to it because there was because there were other people who were connected to it in a way that I Either they they literally believed in God, which I couldn't quite identify with in the same way, or, I mean, there's a certain sort of, 
there's a certain sort of almost like marriage market that goes on. Uh, I don't want to make fun of it, but you know, there's a certain sort of like, oh, you're Jewish. Well, have you met this boy? And that was so uninteresting to me. Like I, I just, I didn't, I didn't feel connected to the sort of like, let's all marry each other and have bourgeois respectability. Um, so, but then when I, when I went to Europe, so I, I went to graduate school in Europe and I ended up working in, in Britain. Um, suddenly that actually became really important to me. And I think that was because then I, then I was in exile too, right? Really, truly in exile. And, and I realized that I, I needed to make sense of why I, I was actually internally in the way I thought about the world different from other people. And, and this was a very strong like through line. And when I discovered differences, cultural differences with other people, I would realize, you know, one of the reasons I'm feeling this way and they're thinking about it this other way is because I'm Jewish, because I was raised with this particular set of values. So at that point, I became more interested. And I also started, for example, celebrating Passover myself and in a more elaborate way than my parents ever celebrated it. And then from there, I began to build more of like a practice for myself. Tell me about the intellectual thread you've been following through your studies at Harvard and, and then postgrad and now in your PhD. What's the kind of, what's the thing that motivates you that's a kind of itch in your brain, mm. the question you're trying to answer? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think there's two, but I, I think only one of them is relevant to the PhD. So directly so I'll, I'll talk about that one first um i am currently writing a phd that is very roughly on the topic of cognitive dissonance which is a psychological phenomena one of the most successfully reproduced that means that we're very confident that not only does it happen it happens to pretty much everybody lots of different cultures we've got thousands of studies on it and effectively what it demonstrates um what it represents rather is that if you believe something very strongly and i come to you and i give you evidence that it's um, not true or not true to the degree that you thought um, very often, indeed almost always, you will actually come away from that conversation where I'm giving you reasons, believing what you already believed more strongly. For example, around the death penalty, they've done some quite famous studies where um, let's say that you believe in the death penalty and I give you reasons why it um, doesn't act as a deterrent. So I say, look at these statistics. Um, countries where there is the death penalty don't have um, any less murder or whatever it is. You will, after we have that conversation, you will go back and you will tell the researcher not only that you believe in the death penalty still, but that you believe in it more strongly than before I gave you good reasons to question whether it's a good idea. And that's true, by the way, if you don't believe in the death penalty and I give you reasons to think it does act as a deterrent, it doesn't matter. Um, and people believe this about so many things. Sorry, they, they have this phenomena about so many things, um, about their personal life, if you try to convince them to quit smoking, uh, about anything, but including about politics. And so to me, and, and I think it should to all of us, this poses a big question about democracy. Because... Um, if we think that in order for a sort of deliberative democratic life to take hold, we probably want to think that people can respond to reasons and change their minds some of the time. And in particular, that they can at least moderate their views, that they can, okay, many people give me reasons, maybe I believe whatever I believed a little bit differently. But if we are in the thrall of this particular psychological phenomenon, then we're not actually um, going to do that. And then the sort of... Uh, then our ability to reason within democratic life breaks down. Um, so I want to look at how we can maybe a little bit improve that. And I think, um, I'm only in the first year of my PhD, so I'm still working on this. But I think that the, the, the core thing when you look at the psychological research as well as psychoanalytic theory is that what happens is that people are defending their ego. They have a sense of self and it is threatened when new information arises that suggests that previous them was wrong. Um, and some psychoanalytic theorists really beautifully talk about this as a fear of death. 
that like old us is going to have to die and have been wrong and be rejected and thrown away for a new us to emerge. And so I want to, first of all, acknowledge this problem and bring it into conversation with political theories that haven't taken account of it yet Mm -hmm. and talk about this as a real limitation of democratic life and a real, real limitation of the type of like, uh, (laughs) I would say, um, uncomplicated sense of self that we tend to curate in the modern world where we're just one thing and they can't be, we can't have multiple contradictory beliefs. We're constantly called upon to have a single point of view. Um, I don't think that's a healthy way of being, but I think regardless of whether it's healthy for the individual, it's really, really bad for democracy. So we need to change our sense of self probably. Yeah. So one of, this is really interesting because obviously it comes out a lot in our work and we work in the think tank world and we're interested in research and persuasion and the role of facts and the role of data. But one of the reasons I started this podcast, amongst many, is I think that model's only part of the picture. And so the thing that we talk a lot about here Mm. is about relationships of trust and respect because my instinct, and again, it's just a gut feeling, is that that effect, which is that if you have someone that you don't feel any particular connection with, Mm. and in particular, if you worry that you think they might already be judging you or they might be dismissive of you or they might not agree with you or they might not be in your tribe, mm-hmm. that those reasons do kind of have this kickback effect of driving you further into your position. But if those same reasons or that same data and evidence is given to you by someone who you trust and respect, that cognitive dissonance effect is lower. Yeah. Is that bone out in the data or am I mad? I, You know, I'd have to go do a thorough read to definitely have an answer, but the one... Re- study that I already am thinking of um, that would suggest you're right. But again, it's such a big amount of data. I have to go through it all. But there is there is some evidence that that's true around, for example, vaccines. Um, so when people, for example, if people live in a faith community and the person who's important within it, whoever they are, tells them, uh, actually, you should vaccinate your children. That seems to be pretty effective. So I think there's at least some some evidence to think that um, it does matter who's telling us this. But the other thing that's quite interesting is, and, and this is really where I'll probably end up focusing my research, is that um, we can even get around this effect to some degree when we think about our identities as more complicated. Because then we're not really defending just one, you know, one version of Elizabeth or one version of Sarah. We're defending like complicated, messy Sarah. And complicated, messy Sarah is going to have to change her point of view because, you know, some of her beliefs are contradictory anyway. Yeah. Um, and so there's some really nice, interesting studies around um, the way people overcome addiction, for example, where a lot of what happens is that someone else just asks them to say, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, how much is this substance a problem for you? Mm. And already that frames it so that. I mean, it would be kind of extreme for them to say zero. Yeah. So they usually say at least like two or three. Yeah. And and that's allowing them to have a more complicated narrative. And then from there, you can build a dialogue where the person who's actually experiencing the addiction or the similar type of problem, um, they're saying all the reasons why it might be a problem for them instead of being told the reasons. Right. So there's something about, first of all, giving people agency to describe themselves on their own terms. And second of all, asking them to do so in a way that isn't binary that allows people to begin to change their sense of self. And equally, there are studies about people when they're asked to describe themselves to themselves in multiple ways. So if you have children who, for example, are minority ethnicity or race, and you ask them, um, hey, you know, before you take this complicated math test, um, just tell me five things that are really important about your identity. And and um, so let's say we have a black child in a school in the United States where there's lots of discrimination. The child will end up saying five things that are not related to their minority identity or like at least four or something that aren't. So they'd say, oh, I'm a really good sibling and I'm really great at 
tennis. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very, uh, it's a very white sport. But anyway, um, whatever they are, I guess yeah. not really, Serena Williams. Um, and so they begin to think about themselves as complicated. Like, yes, I have a minority identity. I might be discriminated against. But also these other things are true of me. And then they tend to do better. And I don't want to say that that means that, like, it's the person who's being oppressed responsibility to think of themselves differently. It's just a good demonstration of the idea that once we think of ourselves in a complicated way, we begin to see more options for ourselves. Um, and so children who do this exercise before they begin an educational process, either a test or even an entire class will do better through the course, um, even in the course of months, because they begin to think about themselves in a multifaceted way, yeah. which is really cool. Um, so we, we can have like new senses of self, but I think it's going to take us work to get there. And have you, as you're just going around in your day-to-day life having conversations with people, <laughs> or maybe in your work, have you found ways that you're applying this? You're doing anything differently? Because your Harvard training presumably means that the tendency <laughs> to just have the best arguments also is there for you. Sure, yeah. Um, well, the good news is that what I actually do day-to-day, especially in my job at the School of Life, is not really a process of argumentation as such. Or rather, um, so what I do... I mean, I've done lots of things for the School of Life, but right now I spend a lot of time designing workshops and they are workshops that are actually more about helping you change your behavior than no information. Um, As it turns out, probably almost all of our classes are actually that way in the world, but ours are explicitly that way. So they might be classes on how to be more resilient in times of stress or how to be a better boss. And that tends to be around emotional things. Um, And so I might have to come up with an argument to say the head of a major organization about why our workshops are the best. And that could be kind of in your head. But the actual workshops are about helping people open up emotionally to the ways in which they might need to change. It might be something like right now you're micromanaging your entire team and it's driving them nuts. Um, And that's not really something that you want to win as an argument because it doesn't matter if they agree with you intellectually. They probably will. You can show them six studies from the Harvard Business Review. What you want to do is begin to situate that in a series of values that they're already committed to, because that's when they're going to be interested in what you have to say. And so most of the workshops I design are really much more about this. It's about who are you? What's important to you? um, Why do you want to be a good leader? And then when the person has set up their own motivation, very much like in the addiction study, then you say, oh, great. Well, here are some tools that will help you do that. And by the end of the class, Ideally, they've actually had an emotional, psychological process of deciding for themselves that they want the thing that you've been trying to convince them to do the whole time, Um, but not because of arguments. I mean, people like it when you give them statistics, but what, what really helps them actually make that behavioral change is to attach the concrete behaviors that you're suggesting would be helpful to an emotional motivation that they already have and which they've thought through and discussed with other people in the workshop. So it sounds like you're never starting with you're wrong. Yeah, because also people are, I mean, rarely are people just wrong, right? Like most people, let's say you're micromanaging your team. Um, it's not that you're like, ah, micromanaging is great. What you are is you're, you know, too busy to rethink that way of behaving or you're, you you kind of just think, well, in general, I would love not to micromanage, but these specific people always screw things up or whatever. So you, you like, there are actually multiple things going on inside for that person. And probably some part of them doesn't want to micromanage. And if you just tell them like, oh, you're wrong. I mean, nobody likes to be told that. So you're actually trying to tell them, you're great. You're, you're going to be a great manager. You're already a great manager. But the bit of you that doesn't want to micromanage is going to get a lot of help today so that you don't have to do that. Um, and I really think that this is obviously like a political thing too, right? I mean, to some degree, um, I think there are very few people who are just wrong. There are, I mean, there are ideas that are wrong. There are, there are fundamentally wrong concepts of the world. But there are very few people who only believe one thing about even like 
quite big issues. And if you want to reach them, you just have to think about how to get get there while they still get to recognize the parts of themselves that are valuable and good. So let's think about how would we apply this to public debates because take, oh, I hate talking about it, but take Brexit, sure. where you've got two very, in, you know, dug in mm-hmm. camps of people. Not everyone, like most people who either remain on Brexit or remain on Brexit in a much softer way than the yeah. noisy voices. But there are some noisy voices on both sides <laughs> who seem to have got locked into this kind of mutually condescending, mutually kind of wounded, sarcastic, one-upmanship slapdown thing. Mm-hmm. And if really what's motivating them is trying to help the other side learn, there is no lo- there is no loving attention to learning there. And there is... Neither is there very kind of strategic persuasion skills If as what we see is happening. If you just tell someone they're wrong, then they will dig in. First of all, I just think we have a culture on debate right now, which is senseless. I don't, I don't like debate as a format for almost anything. I, it's maybe not a popular opinion, but I just think um, like we're a species who like sometimes have enjoyed seeing gladiators fight each other to death. So we probably have not the nicest tendency within us to watch people like smack each other down. And I, I rarely, rarely see a debate that isn't actually a sublimated version of that. Right. Of like, I just want to see the other person be wrong. Ugh. Um, and I, I kind of wish that we could just ban debates for about 10 years because I don't, I, I think there's like a small minority of nerdy people who kind of actually watch the debate to figure out what they think. But like most people watch the debate for the SmackDown and maybe that's very pessimistic, but I, I really just, I don't like debates. So, <laughs> so I, I actually think that the work to be done is, that's why I like the frame of teaching because, because teachers are, I mean, some of us have had negative experiences in school, obviously. So it's not that it's always a positive thing, but the teacher at least theoretically, is on your side and they're there for your purpose. And if they don't get it right, it's on them. This is a belief I have really strongly about teaching, right? That if you have, and, and we know this when, we, when the people you're teaching are, are six years old and then we kind of forget it when we grow up. But if you're teaching and the six-year-old doesn't get it, it's your fault, right? I mean, in a nice way, but it's, it's your job to go be like, okay, that didn't work. How do I teach the child to whatever, to share, to do the times tables? Um, and But I think that the same responsibility holds in adult life for political leadership. If someone isn't receiving your message, that's on you. You know, you never get to be like, right, well, it's because they're stupid, they're stubborn, they're racist, whatever. Maybe they are, some of those things, but but the teaching is on you. And I think that political leadership that looks like teaching is a lot better. So I imagine, on the other hand, obviously, there's a lot of sort of worries about condescending in the field of teaching. And I, I think, Therefore, you need a teacher who's committed to what you might consider an experiential mode of of teaching, which is when you go and you actually have an experience and then you process it and then you change a little bit of the way you think about the world. And then you go and try and do a new thing and see how it works and come back and reflect on it. And I think that a really good teacher is somebody who's effectively there to help you have an experience or to do the thing you already want to do, but then you get to do the reflecting with them. This is how really good therapy works, right? The the therapist is not telling you, even though they probably know in their head because they've seen 100 people, you know, you need to learn to be more emotionally vulnerable. Maybe they say that, often they don't. They just, oh, how did your conversation with your mother go this week? And then you talk about it, you think about it, and, and so on. And eventually, through processing experiences with them, you change your point of view to a way of functioning that is better for you. And I think political leadership is like this too. It says, I'm here for you. What do you want to achieve? Okay, we're going to try this. How did it go? What do we want to do differently? Over and over and over and over again. Um, and I'm really interested in models of learning like this. Yeah, yeah. that are just question-based and listening-based. 
Yeah, I think question based and listening based, and also, um, and also an act of service and love because even even though those might sound incredibly cheesy, in the, but I think that most most really effective leadership basically is that. I don't think most people are interested in anything else, especially when it gets out of the most technical realms. That people people want. First of all, the main reason actually, which is selfish, is people when they actually learn something for themselves, they own it forever, right? If I um, if I, if you decide that it's your big goal in life to figure out how to, I don't know, play Mario Kart or be the best mother ever, and I'm your supportive teacher figure about that, um, and then you do it for yourself, you're going to do that Mario Kart or parenting or whatever so hard because it's your thing that you won with your own hard work. And I think teaching is like that. You want the person to think, oh my gosh, I'm amazing. I did this for myself, you know. And I think political leadership should be like that. It's your victory. And I was just here kind of gently helping. <laughs> but slightly sorry now for your PhD supervisor because your vision of teaching is so beautiful and big. But yeah. Yeah, I think she's, she's You're going to support them into it. But she's great because she's actually, what she is really good at doing is just reminding me that academia is not this. And then how can I make sure this passes through academia? Yeah. <laughs> Which is in fact what I need rather than necessarily her being... Um, I don't know, Jesus or Gandhi or someone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, from Jesus or Gandhi to sex. Um, so we're going to try yeah. and talk about sex in a way that is not prurient or um, makes the sacred not suitable for work. Um, sure. But one of the, uh, the you know, most people I interview, I'm different from or I disagree with on something, right? Sure. And... Uh, one of the things that you and I are different on is the choices that we've made around sex. So, and again, this is really hard to talk about without getting super personal, but one of the ways I'm different from the mainstream is that I have quite a high, I'm quite, I'm actually quite a big fan of the Christian sexual ethic. And so if you bracket out the gay thing, which you can't do forever and is like painful and complicated, but just not for now, what you've got is a kind of way of thinking about sex that, puts a really, really high value on sex as something powerful and beautiful Mm -hmm. that needs to be handled with thought and care. Mm -hmm. And that says human beings have innate dignity and the absolute worst thing you can do is use them. You you know, you use them for your own ends, use them for your own pleasure. um, And... And that applies, you know, in, the, in a theology of work. It applies in lots of different parts in theology that something about human dignity means that they should never be used as a commodity or a means to an end. They're, they're an end in themselves. Mm-hmm. And it puts a huge high value on intimacy. And that all comes together to in a kind of vision of s- sex as best in intimate, committed relationships, mm-hmm. which has been really good for me. Like, you know, Chris and I didn't have sex until we were married you know, again, without getting too personal, I would make the same choices again. I found it intensely kind of fulfilling and life-giving. But the public narrative about it is prudish, repressive, all those things. So it's one of the ways in which in public debates, I don't find my lived experience represented. And you have spoken and researched polyamory and the polyamory, although it's getting really fashionable now, is also the kind of public prudish, repressive, again, quite prurient, often seen as, I think, slightly chaotic and maybe kind of sexually incontinent, sometimes the really negative narratives around it. Yeah, for sure. yeah. and I know that one of the reasons you do the polyhistory work is just to kind of maybe complicate that narrative. Is that a fair...? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think, I mean, look, there's, it's really complicated because um, 
that the, the formal term in academic research is, is consensual non-monogamy. But right. that could cover kind of like anything. Yeah. Right. It could just cover people who say, um, whatever, sex is a transaction. That's all it is. Yeah. And fine, I'm going to wander off and have sex with the person downstairs and my partner doesn't care. But we don't talk about it. Um, and I don't especially... I don't especially have an interest in criticizing that, although I personally probably wouldn't find it very rewarding. Um, But the type of consensual non-monogamy that I'm really interested in, um, partially because it's the way I've lived my life for six years, but also because I think it tells us something important about the nature of love, to to make a big frame around a a controversial issue, uh, is sort of the the type that is about long-term, intimate, committed relationships with multiple people. So that's why we use the... Um, the terrible word polyamory, which is partially Greek and partially Roman and drives classicists crazy. Sorry, classicists. Um, And with my co-researcher, Brian um, Watson, we have a Twitter um, page. It's polyhistories. And we look at different famous people, basically from the start of the Enlightenment till now, who have lived their lives in a similar way. Um, And so this includes people like Virginia Woolf and Lord Byron and Max Weber and Edna St. Vincent Millay and... Um, a whole bunch of people, because in fact, one of the very things you really quickly learn and that I learned actually before I ever became polyamorous myself is that if you just wander through Western intellectual history, every third person you smack into is living a consensual non-monogamous life. Um, (laughs) It's a little bit overwhelming, actually, because you're just trying to do research on some other thing. And um, that's actually what happened to me. I couldn't figure out what to write about for my master's dissertation. And then one day I just ran into this story about Max Weber that hadn't really been written about um, and how he had multiple partners and they lived with him. And then when he died, actually, one of the most touching things is that his wife and his girlfriend or uh, partner, however you want to think about these two relationships, lived together for the rest of their lives. They probably weren't romantically or sexually involved, but they just lived together. And then um, Marianne actually died in Alice's arms. So that's not a narrative that we have about... um, polyamory in the public sphere at all really I would say and it's not really an understanding of love that is very widely held um right now I think the way that we talk about monogamy is really bad for us like I don't actually think monogamy is bad for people per se at least I think there's a wide variety of experiences and for some people it's very good but the way we talk about it is about competition it's about winning that one person who will then complete you Um, it's about ownership. And I think this is something that actually weirdly we can really align on because I think it's very, it's very dangerous to think about people as commodities that you win and own. And especially if you're going to be in a long-term relationship with them, it's actually worse if you at some level think that you own the other person and something that, um, I mean, people haven't really been using the word polyamory until maybe the fifties or sixties in a consistent way. And even then, but that people who began to think this is an intentional practice for me and I'm going to do it as well as I can are interested in both often from kind of like a communistic perspective or some of them are more like libertarians. But either way is the idea that non-monogamy is partially a practice of learning that love is not ownership, that you don't own your partners and that you can ask them for things. You could even ask them for exclusivity at various points in your relationship, but that it's not a, it's not a norm. It's not a given because you don't own them. And you want for them what's best for them, even if that means that also someone else is really important to them. And I think that's a really important sort of foundational principle for thinking about it. And I also think it's it's important even outside of the context of sex. Um, and this is something else I would complicate is that like a lot of the people we research and also a lot of the actually polyamorous people that I know now, sometimes they're having sex with all of their partners, but often they're not, which is even more interesting. So there are a lot of people who have 
um, maybe just some of their partners or even all of them, they won't necessarily be having sexual intercourse or whatever with, um, because it is really actually about love for most of these people in some way. It's not just, it's not just the liberation that theoretically happened in the sixties where we could suddenly have love with, um, sorry, have sex with loads of people. It's also about the idea of what it means to love someone. And so you also get a nerd culture within polyamory. That's about like, Every week we have a radar discussion where we talk with a spreadsheet and I ask you, how are you feeling about finances this week? How are you feeling about communication this week? How are you feeling about children this week? And there are these like communication tools that have come up in the polyamorous community that are really intentional ways of thinking about what it means to love another person. And I think that's really beautiful also. Wow. <laughs> um, there's so many threads I could pick out of that, but... So let's let's talk about just in terms of how we talk about things in public. Yeah. Do you kind of have questions about the kind of Christian sexual ethic or people who make those choices or um, have you um, have you encountered people like me who those, those are the choices that they've made in the past and how do you feel about how they're spoken about in public? I, I mean, I think it's actually a really similar problem of lack of recognition. I guess I feel like it's not so mysterious to me, both because I have friends who make those choices, also because I spent so long studying people like Mormons who very much are meant to make those choices. And I I mean, you know, I it's difficult because I actually think once you believe in experiential learning, you 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 think of every every particular strategy as a way of trying to come to a learning point rather than definitely you will get you there. So I think you could think about, for example, saying I'm not going to have sex until marriage as a way of trying to inculcate within yourself a particular relationship to the body and respect for other people. And then some people will abstain until marriage and that is what they will have learned. And other people probably, especially if their community is not doing a good job of this, but there are other reasons too, will have that experience of abstinence until marriage and it will be really bad for them for some reason. And I think... Once we think about it in that way, then it makes sense why it's actually very complicated and personal. Um, but I don't, I, I kind of get it. I get the idea that you would want to be really specific about when you have sex. Like that to me is, is kind of intuitive. And I think equally you can imagine a world where, you know, you do the polyamory and, and it makes you realize that your partner is this completely autonomous person and you will freedom for them. Or you can have it and it's really dysfunctional and horrible, right? So I think they're both strategies for trying to build respect and love for other people in a particular way even though they look very different yeah and do you I mean I don't feel particular any shame or stigma around my choices I just don't talk about it very much because it does quickly get to a quite a prurient way particularly with people that you don't know very well and I got quite burnt in my kind of early 20s by like drunk men in bars getting very fascinated by this fact um but I do definitely feel like when I do talk about it, people have a load of baggage and I'm making a, quite a lot of assumptions about me and my husband. And then you're just navigating that and it's okay, but you know, it's a thing. Do yeah. you feel the same about being polyamorous and being that in public? And Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually find it really challenging. I, and I, it's weird because I, there are certain things that I don't, I don't find challenging in the same way that are equally like people can make judgments about. Like I don't actually, I feel so secure in being Jewish that when people are a bit weird about that, I'm like, they're just idiots. That's on them. Mm. Um, <laughs> do you still do get that? 
Well, I think people, most people that I run into in the course of my daily, you know, metropolitan elite lifestyle are just like, oh, how interesting. But but I, I don't really worry about it in the same way, because even if I did run into a person who engaged in a bunch of ethnic, racial, religious stereotyping, I would I would be able to differentiate that from the way I feel about myself, mm-hmm. I think, mostly. Um, but I but I actually think that this is a thing that people are, I mean, I think that the discrimination people face for being LGBT is generally worse when it happens. It's more violent. It's more, there are a lot of more serious problems there. But I also think actually that it's at least discussed more widely. And and I think what happens when you bring up polyamory is this blank space that is very intimidating because it's almost better to be recognized a little bit and then people have an opinion about something than to have people just just not even know what it is that you are, right? Or to not have any idea. And there are just moments where in my life where I've just thought like, I'm having an emotion right now. And there's nobody in the physical environment that I'm in that has probably ever had this particular experience. And I, and, and they, they won't even know what feeling to respond if I tell them about it. And I think, so for example, like if two of my partners meet each other for the first time, the closest thing I can describe is that it's like your partner meeting your parents, right? Like you really need both of them to like each other at least a little bit and you're really nervous about it and it's kind of exciting and happy and it's also kind of scary and you're worried about how both people feel and you and there's like, there are 12 million feelings attached to that moment and nobody near you at the time, I mean, basically I just wrote Brian in the end, <laughs> you know, I just wrote Brian, my co-researcher and I said like, how do you deal with this, right? But you have to go find people who will get it because they they won't automatically. And I, I think, I think there's a particular type of loneliness that comes with that. But, but you know, I'm I'm trying to learn to navigate it better, because I think the most compassionate thing for the world is to be like, okay, other people don't understand this, but once I didn't understand this either. I mean, I didn't think I was going to be polyamorous. It just happened to me kind of randomly. Mm. You know, so I just try to think about like 21-year-old me. And I just try to, to remind myself that everyone else is kind of 21-year-old me and that's okay, right? Um, but yeah, it's lonely. And, it, and then there's like a lack of recognition that would be nice in theory. But, you know, one of the many things that's broken about our public sphere is we can't always give people the recognition that they want. Thanks for trusting me and talking about it and yeah, being vulnerable. Sure. <laughs> I feel that's a real privilege, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you uh, about that specifically. Sure. When you are balancing on those boundaries, what are the things, and it's probably harder for you on one side of this than for many other people, but I usually ask on the kind of spectrum of difference on which you sit, what would you like the two sides to understand better and do better? So if you're... Sorry, is this about politics, polyamory? <laughs> let's do, do it on polyamory and then we'll talk about politics. Um, just to, sure. like, what would you like polyamorous people... Maybe would you like more of them to speak up so that you feel that kind of public solidarity or something else? And for those who aren't polyamorous, are there things you'd like them to stop assuming or a question that you always get that makes you groan or just something they wish that you wish they understood okay, about? Okay, yeah, this is a good question. Um, look, I mean, first of all, this is not a protected characteristic in, I think, any major country, certainly not in the United Kingdom. Like, I could get fired for this tomorrow. I don't think I will be. But I can be, and that's legal. So I never hold it against other people when they're not out because... And in particular, the thing that's most dangerous and problematic is um, that your children can get taken away from you at times. And often you're not allowed to adopt. And and I think that's such a mistake. Um, and for example, you know, I'm in, in many 
uh, like closed groups, Facebook groups, whatever, and people constantly are getting investigated by the police just for this kind of thing. And and what's what's worst about this, I think, I mean, because I would say in general, again, I don't want to equate this with, for example, the discrimination that gay people face. I think on average, people who are queer, especially in in very particular cultures, are facing higher levels of discrimination, violence, and so on. But I do think that um, there is a particular thing that hurts that happens between parents and their children. Because what ends up happening is there's a group of parents who just don't tell their children. And that's very, very, very common. But imagine having such a big secret from your own children. It's, it's like it's kind of staggering to think about. Or there are parents who do tell their children and then they constantly worry that their children will tell someone at school and someone at school will tell a teacher and a teacher will report you to social services. So, like... What is... Sorry, to, yeah. I'm probably really ignorant here, but what would they be reported to social services for because they think uh, the, the other partner is somehow a threat or yeah i think a lot of the time it's framed as like the so usually bizarrely what's what what is the official worry of social services is that the child is being exposed to too much sex but of course like um presumably with a few rare exceptions just as monogamous people like you don't let your children see you having sex that would never happen right i'm not your children don't don't like experience even if you have sex with your husband in a monogamous relationship your children don't experience that but the stereotype is that like somehow because like mummy's boyfriend comes over occasionally the child will learn about sex at too young an age whereas in practice i mean most polyamorous people even if mummy's boyfriend comes over he like takes the kids to the park and buys them more ice cream than mummy allows them to get and like they would not be exposed to anything inappropriate um and so it's more a stereotype about hypersexuality, which is interestingly also the stereotype that's applied to LGBT people a lot of the time. Um, or, I mean, some people are just straight up like monogamy is the only ethical form of sexual life and this is an unacceptable thing for a child to even know about. Um, now, like, of course, many social services people will just dismiss this. They'll, like, be given the report, they'll come check in with the parents and they'll be like, fine. But there are also many people who are turned down for fostering, for adoption, and very rarely situations where it contributes to children being taken away. And in this country, it's not just polyamory that can get your children taken away, but it's really, really common. We have a really high rate right now of people's children being put into care for all kinds of things. So anyway, so there's a very fine line there. And I, for that reason, I mean, I don't blame anyone for being in the closet. I also think people are just weird about it and it's stressful and difficult. I think I would like people to think about the way that they love their multiple children or their many friends or how you can love both parents and recognize that this that there isn't an intuitive immediate reason why you couldn't also love multiple partners we can always choose to be monogamous and that can be a good meaningful choice but it should be a choice for its own reasons not a choice because it's impossible to feel otherwise or because um there's something inherently horrible about loving multiple people and i i I'm not articulating this very well, but I think there has to be something about recognizing that if we're going to be monogamous, let's do it for better reasons than that it's a norm around property, right? Yes, because now that, like, that we can really agree on. <laughs> yeah, like, like what a stupid reason. And also there's a lot of gender stuff, you know, um, around like, well, if a woman does it, then she's being slutty. I mean, this nonsense. Or, you know, if a man lets his woman sleep with other people, then there's just terrible terms for this, right? And I think we have to really get rid of that nonsense. And then we can think about for ourselves after we've, torn away these trappings of, of sort of toxic monogamy then we can choose what we want for ourselves for better reasons um so i think that's what i'd love from the outside world <laughs> sarah thank you so much for speaking to me on the sacred great thank you for listening to the sacred 
I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.